Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution. Welcome back to another episode of the Superhumanize podcast. What does it take to actually become superhuman and fulfill our true potential? Underlying this is confidence. Whether you are on an athletic team, a sales force, or a symphony orchestra, you better be honest about what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself and what you think about all the things that happen day by day, that's what constitutes your confidence. And these are the words of today's guest. Dr. Nate Sincer is a world-renowned psychology expert who teaches how to develop the self-belief essential for world-class performance. He has taught three generations of soldiers, athletes, and executives to master the art of confidence and mental toughness. Dr. Zinser is the director of the Performance Psychology Program at the United States Military Academy at West Point, the most comprehensive mental training program in the country, where for 30 years he has helped prepare cadets for leadership in the U.S. Army. He has also been the sports psychology mentor for numerous elite athletes, including two-time Super Bowl champion Eli Manning, as well as many Olympians and NCAA champions. Dr. Zinser is the author of the critically acclaimed book, The Confident Mind, a battle-tested guide to unshakable performance, and today he will share with us how we can train the mental skills that underlie excellence in any human performance. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Doc Z, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. It is really great to connect with you today. Thank you for making time. It's a pleasure to be here, Ariana. Let's rock. Yes, let's rock it. I've been really psyched for this conversation because you are an expert on something that really is core to my life's quest and to evolving and becoming better. You have written the book, The Confident Mind, a battle-tested guide to unshakable performance. You know a lot about confidence. And I'd like to jump into this conversation with the following question. Before we win any big battles in this world, what's actually the first victory we need to achieve? Well, I use the term first victory just to refer to that sense of feeling up to the challenge of the moment. That's the first victory is the victory over overwhelming self-doubt, worry, fear, over analysis of the consequences, etc., etc. All the things that could make us hesitate at the moment of truth. That's the first victory. That's what allows the surgeon to feel comfortable enough 
to dive into a procedure. That's what would help any student feel comfortable enough taking a final exam or a college entry exam or a law board, medical board, etc. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we have to win this battle inside our head. So many of us have great goals, fantastic visions and ideas, and that's actually the first obstacle that we stumble upon and cannot move past in many cases. I certainly have struggled with that myself or quite a large part in my life. I would like to know from you, I'm curious, and of course, in your book, which I highly recommend you extensively dive into this, but for our audience, what in your what is your definition of confidence, Dr. Z? I refer to confidence in very functional terms. I refer to confidence as a sense of certainty about your ability or abilities, and that's contextualized for any particular profession or activity. But it's the sense of certainty about your abilities that allows you to be relatively unconscious while you are engaged in the negotiation. You're relatively unconscious, that is, present in the moment rather than distracted by your own accumulation of thoughts at the same time as you are hitting the ball, reacting to an opponent, cutting a particular piece of a tumor away from the spinal cord. It's that sense of unconscious engagement in the moment. You have to be certain enough so that you can be in that. And that sense of certainty is something that can be cultivated, built up. It needs to be protected and maintained because we live in a, such a imperfect universe. And then that certainty has to be brought into your moments of truth, whether they're in a classroom or on a playing field or even on a battlefield with bullets flying. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I, I want to talk more about what you just mentioned, that confidence is actually something that needs to get developed and also, of course, protected. As far as this, I really think what you just shared with us is profound and it rings true for me too, that this being in the now. I've experienced from when I was a teenager, I remember I played basketball probably 13 years old, 13-year-old girl. And I remember at one point I was staying in center court. I was at some basketball camp in Tallahassee. I lived in Florida back in the time. And I was not an exceptional basketball player. I played fairly okay. I enjoyed it. But at that moment, I was at center court. And for some reason, I just felt very calm. I just had the knowledge, not even a logos, not even words. I just knew if I now would aim the ball I would actually hit, it would make it into the basket from center court. So I just, I did, and it happened. And that never left my mind. It was, I knew that it was not just attached to, okay, I had practiced a certain amount, but this being completely in the now, being completely unfazed, and just going through with it. And just recently, I was introduced to archery, which I absolutely loved. And interestingly enough, the same kind of quiet, calm in the now, you know, 
this mixture between complete fluidity and non-attachment yet tension. And what was astounding, uh, how often I was able to hit the target. So what you just said, also to bring this moment into our into our lives, have you known people who are capable to do this pretty much all of the time? I wouldn't say I know anyone who's able to be in that ultimate state of certainty and presence all of the time. Um, it's a state that you, but very importantly, at the moment of truth, you have to surrender to it and let it come to you rather be rather than be deliberate and willful in trying to create it. I talk a lot in my book about building up your confidence and building up your confidence and protecting your confidence. But then as you enter the arena, it's okay. I know what I know. I've practiced what I've practiced. Let's see how good I can be. And then I just have to open up my awareness and let my confidence come out. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned archery, Ariana. One of my clients is a not quite at the Olympic level of archery. And her whole secret is just a, a quiet, easy mind. Mm -hmm. And I have a quiet, easy mind as I am going through my shot process. Very easy to talk about. Somewhat challenging to achieve, but... It's pursuing that challenge to just get to that state of ease. That is what brings us so much joy and satisfaction as we pursue our various personal and professional passions. Indeed. And I'm quite curious about, I've practiced yoga since I was four years old on and off. I lived in India back in the day. It's just what they did with kids in the kindergarten. You started to practice yoga. And of course, a big part of the teachings in yoga is to bring the yoga off of the mat into yes. your everyday life. Mm -hmm. and I'm really interested and cur curious about pursuing archery more to see if I can bring what came relatively, I don't know why, easily, this quiet confidence and feeling calm, if I can nurture that and bring that into daily life. And by the way, this kind of feeling does not often come to me easily. So I was quite surprised that uh, during this archery training, it was just there. So it's something I want to pursue. The Something that I think is important to underscore is that there is a difference between confidence and competence, right? Can you unpack yes. that for us? <laughs> Any sport or any profession requires both competence in terms of actual knowledge or skill or ability. But having said competence doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to perform well unless you have a lot of confidence in your competence. There are, I've seen it gosh, more times than I can possibly recount, people who have indeed practiced and practiced and studied, and by all accounts, yeah, 
they're pretty good. They can they can answer every question in their study group and they can hit every shot from every part of the court in practice. But when it's time to actually play in a game or take a test, rather than having the sort of conviction in their competence, they wonder if they indeed did practice enough or wonder indeed if did the answer I just gave really answer that particular question? And they end up going back and changing an answer that was perfectly fine. Just because you're competent doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be effective in performance. You have to have a sense of trust in that which you have trained. Mm. Now, it certainly makes sense to do a lot of training. doesn't make a lot of sense to train a lot unless you also make the decision to trust, have conviction, have certainty about all the things that you have trained. Two sides of a pyramid. I want to get to that pinnacle. I want to train really hard, and I want to trust all that I have trained. And that's the challenge that I see for a lot of people, and that's the way I encourage them, because I, I certainly can't tell a golfer a whole lot about his or her swing mechanics, and I certainly can't tell an Olympic bobsledder about his or her ability to steer. I don't know those technicalities. But I can tell them a lot about using your memory, using the way you think about yourself, and using, using your imagination to get to a point of certainty about yourself, which will allow all your competence to have its fullest expression. Absolutely. And I can relate a lot to what you just said. I've, I had, I've been dealing with anxiety for most of my adult life and fairly recently have gotten a lot of relief from that, which is wonderful. So I know exactly what you mean. You can train and work very hard for something but in the end if you stand in your own way with self-talk anxiety mm -hmm. or other things that can com be completely debilitating keep you from achieving your goal what are actually some key factors that influence our own belief systems and how we approach our own progress or goals and success yeah i devote a chapter in the book to really looking at some potentially limiting beliefs that are just part of our socialization process. We receive a lot of messages in this world about the importance of paying attention to your mistakes and your shortcomings mm -hmm. as a way of improvement. Um, and a lot of times you, you can hear an athletic coach tell his team or her team, Okay, gang, the uh, let's be perfect out there. The team that makes the fewest mistakes is going to win. So no mistakes out there today. Oh. Yep. That just makes people more self-conscious about their mistakes. And then when a, a mistake happens, which is pretty much inevitable, no matter how good you are, it's easy for said athlete to be thinking, Coach said we can't make any mistakes, and I just made a mistake. So I don't know. 
I don't think we can be successful at this point. And their whole level of enthusiasm and energy will slide accordingly. That's just one of a number of limiting beliefs. It's not about eliminating your mistakes. It's about playing well in between your mistakes. And it's certainly possible to do that. And it's certainly possible to say, okay, yeah, I made a mistake, but it was just there at that moment. It was just there in that particular setting or situation. And it has nothing to do with what I'm doing right now. And mm. so I can be really good right now. And those mistakes have no lasting impact, no residue that are that, that is going to make me feel preoccupied or less than certain about my ability to execute right now. Mm. I think I think we've got a lot of messaging also about taking yourself very seriously, certainly respecting maybe to too great a degree experts and the the great competitors, the great opponents that you might have. Everybody is quite certain that Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback who ever played professional football. You do have to go compete against him. If you're one of the other 31 starting quarterbacks in the National Football League, and you can't be putting him up on a pedestal. You've got to see him for the, 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 the good player that he is, but you also have to see him as human, vulnerable, beatable, and it's your job to pursue that. So we have to, we have to throw away some of these limiting beliefs if we're going to allow ourselves to perform with that very helpful degree of certainty that I'm talking about. Mm, beautiful. And uh, what you just talked about a minute ago, the mistake to tell teams to not make mistakes, to go out there and be perfect. I can imagine that would be similar to telling someone, do not think of a pink elephant. And of course, then your brain focuses on right. You know, try that's what the brain is going to think about. So, first of all, you're going to be focused on mistakes, not making them. You're going to be hyper aware of them versus focusing on your goal and on the joy and ease and play and just the certainty, right? Exactly. Yeah. I was having an interesting conversation with one of my clients just recently who is a, he's a professional golf coach. And we came up with this phrase. Your body will do what your brain is full of. Huh? And I think that's a pretty good way to look at it. <laughs> you know? Your body will do what you're thinking about the most. Are yes. you thinking about solid executions? Solid execution. Or are you thinking about the consequences of a low score, a loss? etc 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 and your body is wonderfully sophisticated in doing executing performing that which you have thought the most about that has descended from high levels in your brain to low levels and there it is in the base of your skull and it's just giving the instructions 
to your eyes and your hands and your feet and your heart and your lungs and your tongue if you're speaking. It's going to give the instructions based upon whatever it's been filled with. So you got to be very careful about that. 100%. And that's also where neuroscience and quantum physics intersect. Our brains are manifesting machines. So whatever's in there will come out. Yeah. Um, and this, finally, in this day and age, we actually have neuroscientific diagnostic technology that can actually show us rep physical representations of brains in an effective state versus an ineffective state. Mm -hmm. And it's quite clear that moments of high performance are produced by really an economy of brain activity, an economy of brain activity. There are only certain parts of your brain that are necessarily engaged to perform a given task and other sections of your brain, other thought processes, other neural processes, they can drop out. So a, when the archer refers to a quiet, easy mind, she's being both metaphorical and anatomically accurate. The parts of the brain that see the target, the parts of the brain that draw the bow and release the bowstring, they are fully engaged. But the parts of the brain that are thinking about what the score is, what the score was, what the score could be, what the score should be, what the score might be, and all the various sequelae of those thoughts, and our brains are really good at going to all those things, <laughs> but those brain structures are dropped out for the time being. It is very similar to a type of a meditative state. And I would be curious if one could actually analyze the brain of somebody who is a high performer and really completing a task successfully and somebody who's in a meditative state, whether there's an overlap, whether there's similarities. There are considerable similarities in those states Certainly with high-level rifle marksmen and indeed archers, it's a stationary task. We can actually look at the function of the brain in the seconds before the trigger is pulled. And there is a marked decrease in beta brain waves. There's a flush of, of alpha and high-end theta very similar to what we see in advanced meditators who are also having their brains analyzed while they are in their states of meditation. Mm -hmm. And you actually talk about the shooter's mentality. Yeah, when I use the term shooter's mentality, I'm not necessarily referring to what we see on a computer screen with a 24-lead electroencephalogram. When I use the term shooter's mentality, I'm referring to the way the best basketball players, lacrosse players, hockey players think about their goal scoring, basket scoring, point scoring ability. They have a remarkable ability to actually gain confidence 
after each miss, which sounds completely counterintuitive, um, but the rationale would go this way. If let's say that you're a historically a 50% shooter from the basketball, maybe indeed you're the odds of you making the third one are now better than 50%. Now, from a purely scientific, logical, probabilistic standpoint, that makes no sense at all. That's not the way probability works. But we as humans can choose to think that, oh, now my odds are better than 50%, so I'm not going to hesitate to shoot, even though I've missed my first couple of shots. And indeed, if I miss four or five, I can choose to think, oh, now I'm really due to get one in. The odds are really in my favor, way better than 50%. We can choose to think that way, or we can choose to think, I've lost four or five in a row, so I guess I just don't have it tonight. Good <laughs> basketball players don't have the luxury to think, I'm just not in a good place tonight. and. I probably can't expect to be, I guess my team is going to suffer and we're probably going to lose. You don't have that luxury in the real world of human performance. The best shooters are able to think, okay, yeah, I missed those three, so give me the ball. I'm ready to go. I'm going to hit the next one. And so they can gain confidence when they're not successful. Mm -hmm. And then when you flip it around, if they do indeed hit their first three or four in a row, they just decide, I'm on a hot streak now, and I'm going to make everything I look at, rather than thinking, I've made my first three, which means I'm probably going to regress back to my mean, so I shouldn't expect to make my next one. Mm -hmm. um, the shooter's mentality is the combination of both of those things. The idea of, oh, each miss is just an indication that I'm going to hit, and each hit is just an indication that I'm going to keep hitting. Again, there's a certain lack of rationality to that thought process, Ariana, but there is great effectiveness in doing that, which is why I teach it as much as I can. Yes, and it's beautiful. It helps you to get into peak performance. And Dr. Z, I would like to talk about peak performers. You are the director of West Point's performance psychology program. So you're dealing with absolute peak performers. West Point is one of these institutions that is just held in extremely high regard. You're working with human beings who are absolute peak performers. And I'm curious, what are some of the key obstacles or common pitfalls you have observed amongst those individuals that you've worked with for many years and how? Have you been able to overcome them? Okay. I got to say a couple of things. The cadets at the United States Military Academy are indeed remarkable young men and women. They're just young men and women. They are human beings. They have hopes and dreams and fears and insecurities and doubts just like everybody else, just like the student body at, you can name any any college or university you choose. What I think is very special about the young men and women at West Point is the commitment that they have made voluntarily to engage in 
very demanding program of academic and physical and military training. They have made this commitment. They know that they are getting into a very challenging environment, and they're willing to do what it takes to succeed in that environment. So they are going to be very diligent in terms of managing their daily schedules. They're going to be very diligent in getting as much sleep as they possibly can, which is a challenge at West Point because they have a very full schedule, a very full day, a lot of activities and duties that they have to perform. Students and young adults everywhere, they will have moments of frustration, moments of hesitation, moments of fear and doubt. My job and the job of the program that I've been running for these years is to help them cultivate the kind of confidence that will lead to the kind of focus that will allow all the work that they put in and all the natural talent that they brought to West Point to find its, its fullest expression, whether that is in the classroom, whether that is on an athletic field, or whether that is in a military-style training event, their various summer responsibilities, their various military individual advanced development events that they have to participate in at different points throughout their career. It's, it is remarkable to see how well some of them respond to that challenge and make the dean's list and earn scholarships post-graduation, who they achieve All-American honors in various athletic events. And occasionally they do hit that wonderful moment of complete clarity, complete engagement. And that's when I know my work has really paid off. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's wonderful. And I think one of the biggest challenges is and whether you are in an environment where the utmost is asked for you, excellence is asked for you, or whether it's for each and every one of us in daily life. And especially if you look back at the last two years that we've had, and if you look at all the challenges ahead of us, being confident in the face of the unknown. Yeah. What are some of the key things that we could enforce, focus on, contemplate in order to help strengthen that type of confidence? Sure. When you mentioned that, I'm thinking a lot about our graduates and our servicemen and women who are entering a combat situation where, you know, a lot of things are not known. That's the ultimately stressful human activity. And the way you make the best of that, the way you bring out the best in yourself, is to establish as much personal certainty as you can, rather than be preoccupied by all the things that are outside of your control. Mm -hmm. um, the, in, in the introduction to my book, I tell the story of a West Point grad by the name of Stoney Portis. He's now a colonel. When he was a captain serving in Afghanistan, he had to arrive at a camp 
situated deep in a valley in the mountains of eastern Afghanistan, where his soldiers were under attack by an overwhelming force. He first attempted to get to the camp via helicopter. He was at a, a distant base. He received the report that his soldiers were under attack. He immediately got in the helicopter, headed there. And in that helicopter, which is taking fire from the enemy, he faced the decision to think, geez, this is maybe where I'm going to die. Or to go back to his training and say, I am the leader. I make the decisions where they count. I am going, this helicopter is going to land at a certain place. There are a certain number of my soldiers with me. I'm going to go here. He's going to go there. She's going to go there. And this is how we are going to take control of the situation. He's breathing deeply. He's envisioning that. And he said, in a few moments, I was in my zone. So he was establishing some mental certainty to the extent that he could over a very uncertain situation. That is the key for all of us. Mm-hmm. When you are in a frightening situation, what is it that you have control over? What can you do? Stay focused on that rather than a million what ifs or could be's over which you have no control. Every Everyone can do that. And our, the experience of servicemen and women in the ultimately stressful situations who exercise that self-control serve as wonderful examples to all of us. So overcoming this influx of negative what-ifs and also, of course, overcoming negative self-talk is really key. Focusing on your competence, what you have learned, bringing forth that confidence. You actually also mentioned that being nervous sometimes can be a good thing. The word nervous can be taken and understood in one of two ways. The word nervous can be interpreted as uneasy, uncomfortable, I'm nervous, I am agitated, I am overly anxious, or the word nervous can simply refer to your nervous system Mm -hmm. pertaining to your brain and your spinal cord and all the different nerves that run throughout your body and tell your muscles when to contract and your organs to function in a certain way. So when someone says, I'm really nervous, I like to remind them, yes, you are really nervous. There is increased activity in your nervous system, which incidentally is the way you are biologically wired to function. When you're about to do something that is important to you, and it can be important because it's something that you really want, or it can be important to you because it's something that you have to do, like a required exam. And there are lots and lots of required exams at West Point. When you are in that position of having to do something that's important, your nervous system is going to activate. It's going to ramp up. It's going to become more active. Your brain is going to send messages throughout your body to produce performance-enhancing chemicals mm-hmm. like adrenaline, which makes your heart beat more blood and infuses your muscles with blood, and it excites your nervous system so that you become a stronger, faster, more perceptive, reactive human being. Gosh, I'm really nervous. My stomach is turning upside down. My, my limbs are shaking a little bit. 
Yeah, that's because your nervous system is giving you all these performance-enhancing chemicals. I know they feel a little weird, uh-huh. but please think about how good it is that your body gives you this. And if you think of it that way, you can actually say, okay, I'm, I am comfortable emotional mm-hmm. in my somewhat uncomfortable body. Mm-hmm. And if I'm comfortable emotionally, my body's going to end up doing just what I want it to do. So that, that's a piece of learning that we don't really get mm-hmm. anywhere. Nope. Nobody taught me that in high school biology. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good thing to know. 100%. Absolutely. And because, as you just said, being emotionally at ease, being able to just go with the flow of what's mm-hmm. happening will enable you to just function so much better. It's normal also to fail. And it's also fairly normal to have fear of failure. How, what is the best way to deal with failure and also this Fear of failure. Okay. Which would you like me to address first, the failure itself or the fear thereof? Let's go with the fear of at first. We already talked about quite a few things that kind of illuminate that. Let's say I have a very specific uh, situation and I have failed a few times before. Let's say I'm taking my driver's license test if I'm a younger person or a person without a driver's license in the U.S. Or let's say it's a super important, crucial point in my life and I really have to succeed at what I'm doing because it's going to have a massive impact on how my life will be after. The most important thing to know in this particular situation is that fear is an instinct of self-preservation, is a choice that you're making. It's a decision. It's a decision. I am choosing to think about the consequences of a bad grade, a failing score. I am choosing to think about that. Okay. I understand that you want it. I understand that you're probably feeling nervous. Okay. I understand that you're, that you really do not want to fail. I am afraid of something happening, but when you are afraid of something, you, tighten up and withdraw from it, you have to decide, okay, I am going to take this test and I'm going to see how well I can do. I would much rather you be overly confident, almost to the point of cockiness Mm -hmm. about taking that test rather than be, rather than be fearful of it and be tight and withdrawn. You will always perform better, almost always perform better if you are looser and more aggressive toward that. Mm -hmm. So the fear of failure is a choice that you're making about how to think about the activity that you're going into. Should you indeed fail at said test or said task, then the question becomes a little bit of a head scratcher. Okay, did I fail because I did not know, did not have the capability, was unprepared, or did I fail because 
I suddenly got so scared while I was doing it. And any failure is just an opportunity to say, okay, what happened? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. well, let's well, let, well let's look at what happened. Yes, I missed a lot of putts to the to the right on this in this golf match. Okay, well, so I go back and I straighten out my putting stroke. Okay, simple as that. I just learned something about myself. Now that I've learned it, I can feel a little more certain about my ability to do well next time I'm out there. Yes. I have to look at the information that the world is trying to give me through that failure and take that information and say, okay, good. Now that I have this, now that I know this, I can address that particular imperfection of mine and I can build it up somewhat. And that means I have even more reason to be certain next time I go up. Yes, because failure gives us enormous amounts of data that yeah. we can use to analyze, to become better and to learn. I think one of the issues with failure is that we are, many of us are socialized to take failure really personally. It hits us hard emotionally. We feel bad, not just for ourselves, but we feel ashamed and guilty. Whoever mm -hmm. is around us and witness that failure. You also speak about why being socialized to the norms of society is often a formula to be mediocre. Can you yeah. talk about that a bit? You've got to think about so many of the messages that we receive in elementary school, middle school, high school about being a good person. A lot of the messaging is, okay, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to think to fit in and be normal and be pretty darn happy. Uh, not a lot of those messages are about, here's how to think so you can be the most remarkable human being possible. Um, and what's very interesting is when we do hear, especially in the sports media, we do hear a, a successful, confident athlete mm -hmm. expressing, yeah, I think I'm pretty much the best in the world at this. I'm pretty sure I'm going to beat that individual or that team on a given day. Our reaction tends to be, oh, that person is so arrogant and conceited, and why is it he or she more humble and modest? Huh? Um, we have this kind of socialized distaste, displeasure, in hearing people say, yeah, I actually think that I'm the best in the league, or I actually think that I am as good as somebody who might have a better one-loss record or has better stats. I, I think I'm that good. I just don't happen to have those stats. We tend to look at those people as, gosh, are you nuts? Because our social fabric is dependent upon a large sort of middle class and everybody needs to fit in and be and be normal. Yeah, we do have to be nice to one another, but we also have to be honest about what it is that we're striving to achieve in the short time that we're walking around this planet. 
So I'm encouraging people to be extremely confident on the inside. If you happen to be a naturally extroverted person, go ahead and talk about it. If for, if you happen to be a naturally more introverted person, you're not accustomed to talking about yourself. Fine. You don't have to, but you want to have that same degree of internal certainty that we see in some of the more outspoken individuals out there, especially in the world of sports. I know probably the classic example was the late boxing champion, Muhammad Ali, who was a very outspoken individual. He took a lot of criticism for being that way, especially early in his career. He's a naturally outspoken individual. Mm -hmm. If you are that, way go ahead and talk about it yeah and if you're like if you're like most people who are a little quiet a little quieter that's okay you don't have to say anything about it but you have to have it on the inside how about having that same degree of certainty that i'm going to defeat my next opponent i'm going to succeed at my next task i'm going to earn my next promotion that what that is for me i have that sense of certainty on the inside is very valuable. Whether you choose to express it on the outside is another another question altogether. Absolutely. And having this certainty, having this confidence is so key, I feel, not only for ourselves and our own personal trajectory, but also the, for the trajectory of humanity. And I think it's very mm. important that we question things that we accept as normal. Now, of course, I can either find it appealing or unappealing the way Muhammad Ali talked about himself. However, to basically diss him entirely as a person and as his achievements, it's really important to question that if that is my innate reaction. Because mm-hmm. of course, keeping ourselves fakely humble, not honestly just acknowledging what we're capable of or what we want to achieve, where does that come from? To keep mm-hmm. the mass of people in a state like that where they tear down people who actually stand up and say, yes, I'm really good at that. And even tear it down themselves internally. What does that do? It keeps a large mass of people under control. That's right. Uh, instead of excelling and fulfilling our full potential and maybe in this way, helping humanity propel towards humanity to, oh, where we all can thrive instead of just surviving. So food, yeah. just food for thought. I think that is an excellent observation. I couldn't agree more. It makes me think of that wonderful Marion Williamson quote about uh, who are you not to believe in yourself? Your, your, our greatest fear is that we may indeed be powerful beyond measure. And it's okay to sense that. And I'm, she goes on to say in that quote, the world is not served by you thinking and feeling small. When you allow yourself to come out, you illuminate the world and give other people permission to come out. And boy, I, I, I mean, we could sure use a lot more light these days, couldn't we? 
Yes, we could. Dimming our lights doesn't do anyone any good. Making yourself small so others feel more comfortable does not serve you. It also does not serve the others because they may just also stay stuck in mediocrity and never explore the potential that lies within them. Moving out of these comfort zones, I think, would be of great value for the entire human family. You spoke about something at the beginning of this conversation, which I think is also key. And you said that so protecting your confidence, no matter what, is really important. Tell us why and also how we can do this. One of the facts about human confidence is that it is a very fragile commodity. It's not something that you achieve and then have forever. It's a function of how you think and how you process your memories and how you deal with reality. But let's face it, reality can throw some pretty hard punches at you. So you have to be very good at protecting that sense of certainty. When you do make mistakes, when you do commit an error, when you are imperfect, you have to be very good at keeping those mistakes, errors, imperfections in a certain perspective so that they don't destroy your certainty across the board. You have to be able to say to yourself, okay, yeah, I made a mistake at that moment. I keep those mistakes temporary. I have to be able to say, yes, I made it in that particular situation. It's limited in terms of where it occurred. Mm -hmm. And I have to be able to say, yeah, I made that mistake, but that mistake is not a complete and accurate reflection of who I am, what I can do. So in a way it's non-representative. So I have to be very good at saying, yeah, it happened. It just happened that one time, as opposed to, oh, it happened. Here I go again. It's going to repeat. I have to be able to say, yeah, it happened. But it just happened in that one place, that one setting. Mm -hmm. And if I don't do that, then by definition, I'm probably going, oh, well, yeah, my whole day is messed up or my whole game is messed up or everything kind of isn't working. Mm -hmm. I keep it limited. And if I don't look at that mistake and say, yeah, it's not an accurate reflection of me, it doesn't tell the full story, it's not the truth, then I'm opening myself up for the big self-doubt punch. Maybe I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. So those are three guidelines in terms of how you respond to what Shakespeare said were the slings and arrows of outraged fortune, uh, Mm -hmm. which we are all subject to. Yeah, and that ties into something, Doc Z, that you speak about in your book, and that's building your psychological bank account. You speak about techniques like filtering your past for valuable deposits and envisioning your ideal future. Can you speak a little more to that, please? Sure. That, that That's really the essence of the confidence building process, mm-hmm. to interpret, filter the things that have happened in your life. And the things that are happening like right now, Mm -hmm. filtering those experiences 
so that you hang on to the memories that create a little more optimism, a little more energy for yourself. I counsel anybody who's in any kind of profession to go ahead and spend some time and create a list of your 10 most fulfilling moments. Mm -hmm. That's an an establishment of a psychological bank account, Mm -hmm. a repository of constructive thoughts about yourself. And then as you complete each day of your life or each work day or each training session, each workout, you filter each one of those experiences. And again, you look for memories that contain the seed of encouragement, optimism. Where today did I give quality effort? Where did I overcome a little procrastination? Where did I get something done that I needed to get done? I didn't really want to do it, but I did it. Okay. (laughs) I need to give myself a little bit of credit for that. I need to bring that memory in. And that memory is a deposit into my psychological bank account. Mm -hmm. Yes. I I, I need to look at the little things I might have gotten right today. They may not have been very big things. I, I answered this question right in this class. I got this compliment from a friend. I hit eight out of 10 shots in this particular drill. Those little successes, each of those memories are, again, deposits into that mental bank account. And if we choose to look at them and linger on them for a minute, we allow ourselves a feeling of optimism about ourselves. Beautiful. And then the third thing that we can look at every day is okay. Is there any progress happening? Am I? Is there anything I'm getting better at today, yesterday, the day before? Can I make a note of that? Can I think of that experience of progress? Oh yes, I am indeed getting better at this shot. Oh yes, I am indeed getting better at this calculus operation. Yes, I am indeed getting better at this group of my. Russian language vocabulary. I'm making progress. Mm. That is a memory that builds a certain degree of optimism and enthusiasm. And so it's important to bring these things in day by day. And that's how you build that mental bank account. That's how you build the sense of your own competence, the sense of your competence, not the actual competence, the sense of your competence from which you can be certain. And that's what comp- confidence is all about. Beautiful. Thank you, Doc Z. And there's a question I like to ask every guest on this podcast. And of course, you've shared a treasure trove of amazing tips and practices and insights with us. But I'd like to know if there's a particular practice that may have accompanied you throughout your lifetime that has enhanced your experience mentally, physically, or spiritually that you would be willing to share with us. Is this something that is in the book or something outside the book? or Whatever you choose. I would just throw out the term energetic curiosity. All right? The idea of, okay, let's see what can happen. As an energetic curiosity is a choice. Mm-hmm. We can choose to think, oh, it's going to be this way. It's going to be that way. It's going to be great. It's going to be awful. Or we can choose to think, hmm, 
let's see what this moment, this conversation, let's see how well we can do here, wherever here might be. I will just throw out the term energetic curiosity to your listeners and hope that they will explore it and reap the benefits. I love that. Thank you, Doc G. And for those who would like to learn more about your Reach Out Connect, how can they do NateZinser.com is a forum through which they can contact me. I have been the beneficiary of some wonderful relationships that have taken place through other podcast appearances, people contacting me through that website. Fantastic. I am so grateful I got to spend time with you today and pick your beautiful brain and learn from all these decades of experience that you've accumulated and such a beautiful mission that you have. I highly recommend your book. Confidence is truly such a important thing for all of us to build in order to thrive in life. So thank you for everything that you do and thank you for making time for us today. It was a privilege and a pleasure and my best wishes to you and all your viewers. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.